All right, everyone. So this is my first stream, actually, and I'm going to have Mr. Deming on again. I had him on last week and we talked about the first anniversary of January 6th. You should go back and check that episode out and the previous ones I did with him. But today we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court rulings that came out today. There were two pretty major rulings. Um, Oh, I think I just disappeared. We might have a few hiccups every once in a while. Um, this is my first stream and my Wi-Fi is not that strong, but they struck down the OSHA mandate um, and there was another ruling upholding the mandate and allowing um, facilities with Medicare and Medicaid to continue to enforce the mandate. I think it requires them to. Not as many people are talking about that, but uh, both Deming and I agree that that needs to be talked about more it's i don't think today is as much of a win as everyone is saying that it is so i'm going to bring in mr deming and we're going to talk about i I think it's good to start with maybe reminding people of the arguments that were made a week ago in the supreme court because i think that it can kind of demonstrate just how close we are really to giving up all of our liberties in this country. The fact that we are at a position where we are waiting to hear if a majority of nine people protect our liberty is kind of crazy to me. Um, so I don't know, did, you didn't make, you didn't watch all of the oral arguments. You you just no. read a little bit about it. Okay. I read some and then I, I picked and choose um, some of the stuff. Okay. Yeah, I'll just breeze through a little of the, a little of the highlights that I um, brought came up with. I saw some people just um, listing a bunch of the claims that a lot of the more liberal people on the court had made in, in the arguments. So um, Breyer said that, vac- that the vaccine mandate would prevent 100% of US cases of COVID. Um, that was a claim that was made in the arguments. Um, Soto Mayor said 100,000 children in critical care and on ventilators that there are 100,000 children in critical care right now. Um, And that got to the point where even CNN um, fact-checked them. So it's that's how bad it is that they're so, you know, unwilling to just stay truthful about this. And they're willing... I I saw somewhere that they're willing to fact-check all things that that cause um, vaccine hesitancy. But I wonder if it's the other way around where it's like any lie that promotes vaccines is okay. If, if that's really how they're operating, because the fact that we would have a Supreme court justice making a lie like that to me is just crazy, but it, it is good to see a lot of these fact checkers coming out and, and correcting her. Um, and then Sotomayor also said that COVID deaths are at an all time high, which is just not true. Um, Kagan said it's beyond settled that vaccines and masks are the best way to stop the spread. Um, I I found it interesting. The first time she spoke, she made an argument very similar to like, I I hear this all the time. It's like you say something factual about COVID and you just get this response. It's don't you know we're in a global pandemic? It's like, (laughs) yes. Like, how could we not? Um, And Kagan, that that was kind of the spirit that, that guided her the whole time. Um, uh, Kagan also said that COVID vaccines stop transmission. Um, Sotomayor said federal, the federal government can mandate vaccines using its police power. She, one of her arguments was that, um, she sees no distinction between state power 
and state police powers and the federal government's use of the um, interstate commerce clause, the, the, the powers that they get from that. Um, and you and I have discussed this quite a bit, uh, spe- specifically the fact that they've used the interstate commerce clause to just grab as much power as possible. It's been used in some of the worst cases in U.S. jurisprudence. Um, Rickard v. Filburn comes to mind. Uh, we've talked about that a lot before <laughs> where the Supreme Court literally made the argument that growing wheat on your own land affects interstate commerce because not selling it affects the market. Because if you would have sold sold it, it would have affected the market. So not selling it in the same way does. And they seized this guy's wheat during the Great Depression that he was growing on his own land. It was also used for... Um, Gonzalez v. Reich, uh, where they said that um, the U.S. government could still prosecute marijuana uh, cases in states that had legalized it. And this woman desperately needed uh, marijuana. The her, her doctors had said that she needed it for her medical condition. Um, I think you told me about that case, actually. And yeah, we talked about it a little bit. But yeah, um, it's just absolutely insane that they would they would say that um, you, it's one of the first things that you learn in con law. Like I just took a con law. Cl- I think I backed out again. Uh, I just took a con law class and she was not, you know, a conservative conservative or anything. Um, and one of the first things that you learn is that there is a harsh distinction between um, a strong distinction between state powers and federal powers. That's just clear. So the fact that these people are making those arguments from the court is kind of crazy. Um, and then another thing that I had is that Sotomayor said that hospitals are nearing capacity. Um, Kagan said that vaccine, the vaccine mandate is the most geared to stopping the pandemic. Um, and yeah, PolitiFact and CNN fact-checked Sotomayor just because her claims were that crazy. Uh, I, I know that you had you had kind of cherry-picked some of that stuff. Did you have any thoughts on on that? I've, I've got a lot of stuff that we talked about. Uh, we should probably narrow it down in the interest of time to just uh, really um, a couple of things. First, the assumption that uh, the court has that they have any business telling people that they have to take this experimental vaccine or any vaccine, uh, that it's it's absurd on its face. Um, even though that's the understanding of how the federal government operates or has been operating for a hundred years or more, uh, that, they, that that's not even a question that they can. And in fact, when uh, the justice said, I don't see the distinction between the state's police powers and and the federal government's powers. I don't see the difference there. Uh, she's not making anything up. She probably understands uh, that there is no longer a legal distinction between the two, no matter what you know textbooks are supposed to say. I think that's the very first thing to remember. You go back to your first principles. Well, uh, is, this, is the federal government supposed to have these powers or not? And if they aren't, then the Supreme Court errs whenever they assume they do. And in this case, uh, they, they did make a huge error again. Uh, the other thing I think we should talk about uh, briefly is um, Associate Justice Sotomayor's contention that there's 100,000 children in critical care uh, 
And I, I don't think she said they're all on ventilators or even most of them, some of them on ventilators. Well, even uh, what's the gal's name? Rochelle Rolensky came out and said, no, that's not true uh, justice. So you either have one of two things and there could be a third in there too, but we'll talk about one option. So she is either ignorant of the facts, which is terrifying. If they're going to make policy decisions, which by the way, I don't think that they should make policy decisions based on the out, uh, what the outcome or probable outcome would be. You know, if we don't rule this way, then these things will happen. No, you take a look at the Constitution and see how that applies. All right. So either she is ignorant of the actual facts or she's lying. And neither one of them is a good luck for a Supreme Court justice, even an associate justice. Add to that, when she, during the confirmation hearings, she said, I think we talked about this before, she actually made the statement that she had a better chance of rendering a just decision as an Hispanic grandmother than uh, you know, a bunch of white men on the court. Well, so she's, she's either dumb, ignorant, lying, but she is absolutely racist. So uh, I don't hold out much hope for uh, Associate Justice Sotomayor. Yeah, I mean, she she definitely proved herself to be one of the worst justices on the court in this decision. And I think the benefit of this hearing is that a lot of people were listening to it. A lot of like this is probably the first time where we've had this many people watching and waiting for a Supreme Court decision in, in a long time. Like, it, it's absolutely crazy how far the federal government was trying to, you know, spread its tentacles. And um, I, I think I just wanted to cover a little bit more about uh, the conservative case and, and what the more conservative justices were arguing for. Um, Clarence Thomas actually mentioned a few times in the arguments that um, it wasn't really clear if the vaccine was... Um, or, or there were some questions about the efficacy of the vaccine. I think he, he had brought up and then Amy Coney Barrett, her, her main questions were um, when the mandate would sunset, are we just going to allow like the executive agencies to kind of approach this in an ad hoc fashion or when, when are we going to remove this authority from OSHA? When will the emergency powers be removed? That was her kind of main argument. And I think the the main focus of the conservative justices were whether or not OSHA had ever had these powers before um, or whether or not this was unprecedented and it was similar to um, other powers that they've they've used before. And this leads me to something else that Kagan said. Um, she actually asked why a human is not like a machine if it is spewing virus. Um, and I, I saw a funny thing about this is like this actually encapsulates the entire last two years. If, if you reduce man to a machine and that's all you think he is, then you can you can take whatever liberty from these people like yeah. that. That really becomes how you think of government is that these it's what Dostoevsky said is, you know, man is not a piano key. But these people, you know. And, and maybe it's because of the lack of religion or whatever. Um, they, they truly don't think that there's any, it's, it's almost like they don't, they can't see that there's like the image of God in them, that there's any reason that we would want to have liberty. Um, so that's something that, that I also thought was important to bring up. Um, 
she also said that this wasn't a vaccine mandate and Gorsuch wasn't wearing a mask. Um, but two of the liberal judges attended on zoom, I believe. Um, so I, I think maybe we should actually read the decision. Uh, I think it might be interesting to, um, go through and show the main, uh, opinion, um, and then the concurring opinion and then the dissents just to kind of show the different philosophies here, because I think you and I would both agree that um, even the conservatives on the court have some problems, <laughs> but uh, we might agree with them a little more. But I, I've read the dissent already, and it just shows you how progressives, Democrats, uh, people who believe that the Constitution is a living document, how they really think of government. Um, so I'm going to just open this up and start reading but do you have any more thoughts on uh what i just brought up no no i'm let's go ahead and roll okay just want to make sure i have the right one all right so it was a six three decision um and here it is. The Secretary of Labor acting through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration Administration recently enacted a vaccine mandate for much of the nation's workforce. The mandate, which employers must enforce, applies to roughly 84 million workers covering virtually all employers with at least 100 employees. It requires that covered workers receive a COVID-19 vaccine and it preempts contrary state laws. The only exception is for workers who obtain a medical test each week at their own expense and on their own time, and also wear a mask each workday. OSHA has never before imposed such a mandate. So there you start to see a little bit about uh, what the conservative side of the court is thinking, um, nor has Congress. Indeed, although Congress has enacted significant legislation addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, it has declined to enact any measures similar to what OSHA has promulgated here. Many states, businesses, and nonprofit organizations challenged OSHA's rule in court of, appeal, court of Appeals across the country. The Fifth Circuit initially entered a stay, but when the cases were consolidated before the Sixth Circuit, the court lifted the stay and allowed OSHA's rule to take effect. Applicants now seek emergency relief from this court, arguing that OSHA's mandate exceed its, exceeds its statutory authority and is otherwise unlawful. Agreeing that applicants are likely to prevail, we grant their applications and stay the rule. So they did stay the rule, and then we get a little into their opinion. It's interesting here. Um, you kind of get hints at the the framework that they're going to look at this case. That um, the it was argued on the basis that it exceeds the statutory authority of OSHA, um, not whether or not a short. OSHA has constitutional powers to do this anyway. It's just, has Congress given them these powers? Not whether or not Congress was able to or anything like that. It's just, we're going we're gonna to think very narrowly here, which sometimes is very helpful that they're not just steamrolling the whole thing. And uh, please interrupt if you have any thoughts too. Well, I do have one to start. So um, the, the question comes up then, does the... Uh, Supreme Court mean to say that had the legislature given the OSHA statutory authority, uh, then that would have been constitutional. I, I don't think there's any question that that's what they're telling. And so, uh, and so from now on, 
as long as Congress and now now they know this, uh, and I'm I'm kind of stealing somebody's uh, opinions or uh, thoughts from one of the threads I was on today. Um, now that Congress knows that, they're going to be more deliberate in the way they write their laws so that they get uh, passed constitutional muster. So it's almost a signal to the legislature to unleash the uh, power of the federal bureaucracy uh, as long as they give the go-ahead. And we also learned that uh, Tester actually wants to get rid of the filibuster. We learned that today. Yeah, I heard so, that. I mean, if they're able to do that, like – what the court has essentially said is if Congress, which a lot of the conservative justices think of as like the democratic branch of government. So they think it's it's the voice of the people. So which which I understand and I understand the spirit of they they're separating that power from the Supreme Court and giving it to Congress, which is I I recognize and I, I empathize with that position. Um, but if Congress were to pass a legislation, they would say that it is the voice of the people when it's clearly not. Right. right. But yeah, I'll, I'll keep reading here. It says Congress enacted the Occupational Safety and Health Act in 1970. The act created the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is part of the Department of Labor and under the supervision of its secretary. As its name suggests, suggests OSHA is tasked with ensuring occupational safety that is safe and healthful working conditions and occupational is italicized there. So you are starting to see where they're going with that. It does so by enforcing occupational safety and health standards promulgated by the secretary. Such standards must be reasonably necessary or appropriate to provide safe or healthful employment. And this kind of and employment is italicized again. This this kind of shows you how justices think. They're they're creating standards that have been previously used in Supreme Court decisions. They're not looking at the text of the law. It's just you know Congress has democratically passed this piece of legislation, um, and in that way the people have given OSHA this authority. This is the standard that we have used in the past. Not they're not looking at does OSHA does Congress have this authority in the first place? Um, which is always interesting, just like how stare decisis, they're always going to look at these, these standards that have been used. Um, they must also be developed using a rigorous process that includes notice, comment, and an opportunity for a public hearing. The act contains an exception to these, those ordinary notice and comment procedures for emergency temporary standards. Such standards may take immediate effect upon publication in the federal register. They are permissible, however, only in the narrowest of circumstances. The secretary must, one, show that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new ha hazards, and two, show that the emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Prior to the emergence of COVID-19, the secretary had used this power just nine times before and never to issue a rule as broad as this one. Of those nine emergency rules, six were challenged in court and only one of those was upheld in full. On September 9, 9 2021, President Biden announced a new plan to require more Americans to be vaccinated. Remarks on the COVID-19 response and national vaccination efforts 2021 um, as part of the, that plan, the president said that the Department of Labor would issue an emergency rule requiring all employee, 
employers with at least 100 employees to ensure their workers are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. The purpose of the rule was to increase vaccination rates at businesses all across America. In tandem with the other planned regulations, the administration's goal was to impose vaccine requirements on about 100 million Americans, two-thirds of all workers. After a two-month delay, the Secretary of Labor issued the promised emergency standard. Consistent with President Biden's announcement, the rule applies to all who work for employers with 100 or more employees. There are narrow exemptions for employees who work remotely 100% of the time or who work exclusively outdoors. (laughs) But those exemptions are largely illusory. The Secretary has estimated, for example, that only 9% of landscapers and groundskeepers qualify as working exclusively outside. (laughs) The regulation otherwise operates as a blunt instrument. It draws no distinctions based on industry or risk of exposure to COVID-19. Thus, most lifeguards and linemen face the same regulations as do medics and meatpackers. OSHA estimates that 84.2 million employees are subject to its mandate. Covered employers, covered employers must develop, implement, and enforce a mandatory COVID-19 vaccination policy. The employer must verify the vaccination status of each employee and maintain proof of it. The mandate does contain an exception for employers that require unvaccinated workers to undergo weekly COVID-19 testing and wear a face covering at work in lieu of vaccination. But employers are not required to offer this option, and the emergency regulation purports to preempt state laws to the contrary, which I didn't know. I didn't know that they weren't required to give that option. Um, Yeah, I didn't either. But I'll I've got a reading. note here. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So uh, this whole state law preemption is uh, an interesting concept. Uh, you can probably imagine how I feel about that. But uh, to me, this um, one size fits all for every state uh, is it, just insanity on its face. It's just in, it's insane. Uh, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, uh, North South Dakota, uh, they have different requirements um, than California, New York, uh, and and maybe different fear factors too. I don't really know. Um, but to to impose a mandate like this across the country and then limit it at 100, so 99 you're safe, 99 employees are fine. So the the rule is uh, is a farce. Now everybody, I think everybody uh, understands that. So we have to go to the Supreme Court for them to say, this is really a farce. I mean, why can't we decide that on our own? Why, why can't a business with uh, 120 employees say, nah, we're not going to mandate uh, the vaccine? And then uh, a company down the street with 120 vaccines or 120 employees, we're, we are going to. That's the way it should should work. And then if, if those... Uh, employers working in those uh, companies that require a vaccine. Um, if those, those people say, I don't want to work there anymore. Well, that's the market deciding that for us. We shouldn't have to go to the Supreme Court to make these decisions. And this should never have been imposed. A president should never have 
even dreamed that this would have been uh, something as acceptable. I just I couldn't help myself. Sorry. Yeah. And that, and that's really the question here though, is like, uh, who has the authority? I think, I, I don't know if they get it into, into it in the, in the main opinion, but I think they might in the concurring opinion, J- just about who has the authority here. What, what really this case came down to was whether or not an executive branch. So the president through an executive branch can rule by edict. Like that's, that's really what this case came down to. Yeah. And the question isn't whether or not this is a good policy. It's not whether or not it's reasonable that we would do these things. Right. It's does the Supreme Court and does the government have the authority to do this? The Supreme Court never seems to, at least like the, the conservatives seem to, but um, especially the more progressive side of the court never seems to d- distinguish between what's a well-reasoned argument and what the government has power to do. Like it just, for some reason, they're like, yeah, you know, it would make sense that we do this. Therefore, the government can enforce. It's like no one has ever, no, it has never been the case that the government was supposed to work this way. And the, especially the Democrats, they, they think of the court as just another legislative body. The, The conservatives aren't great at it either, but like, they just think that it's another body to force whatever their policy prescriptions are. And, you know, if they can't get it through the legislature, they're just going to do it through the court, nine people. And they, they're supposedly the ones who are in, in favor of democracy. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. No, it's, it, it doesn't. So uh, you said nine people. Uh, if, if the court continues to strike down uh, the Biden agenda, uh, it'll be 13 or 15. Yeah. Um, and then you lose the filibuster in the Senate, thanks to John Tester. Uh, yeah. And, and so restraints, there'd be no restraints on the uh, power of the general government whatsoever if those things happen. Add to that uh, HR1, which they're going to try to ram through. That's the reason they're getting rid of the filibuster. Um, this is this is not going to be America. I mean, it hasn't been for a while, but uh, everyone will recognize it then. So. Yeah. Well, let's continue reading. It says, but employers are not required to offer this option and the emergency regulation purports to preempt state laws to the contrary. Unvaccinated employees who do not comply with OSHA's rule must be removed from the workplace and employers who commit violations face hefty fines up to $13,653 for a standard violation and up to $136,000 and $500. Thirty-two dollars for a willful one. That's I mean, up to one hundred and forty thousand dollars just for one violation. <laughs> OSHA published its vaccine mandate on November fifth, twenty twenty-one. Scores of parties, including states, businesses, trade groups, and nonprofit organizations, filed petitions for review. With at least one petition arriving in each regional court of appeals the cases were consolidated to the sixth circuit which was selected at random pursuant to and then a piece of legislation i i i'm terrible at reading that (laughs) a piece of legislation (laughs) prior to consolidation however the fifth circuit stayed osha's rule pending further judicial review it felt that the mandate likely exceeded OSHA's statutory authority, raised separation of powers concerns in the presence of a clear delegation from Congress, and was not properly tailored to the risks facing different types of workers and workplaces. When the consolidation cases arrived at the Sixth Circuit, two things happened. First, many of the petitioners 
nearly 60 in all, requested initial hearing. Second, OSHA asked in the Court of Appeals to vacate the Fifth Circuit's existing stay. The Sixth, Sixth Circuit denied the request for initial hearing en banc. I don't know what that means. I, I don't know. Do you do you know Latin? <laughs> Just that. So uh, it means that uh, the, the circuit court met together. Okay. All the members. By an ev- evenly divided eight to eight vote. Chief Judge Sutton dissented, joined by seven of his colleagues. He reasoned that the secretary's broad assertions of administrative power demand unmistakable legislative support, which he found lacking. A third judge panel then dissolved the Fifth Circuit's stay, holding that OSHA's mandate was likely consistent with the agency's statutory and constitutional authority. Various parties then filed applications in this court requesting that we stay OSHA's emergency standard. We consolidated two of these applications, one from the National Federation of Independent Businesses or Business and one from a coalition of states and heard expedited arguments on January 7th, 2022. The Sixth Circuit concluded that a stay of the rule was not justified and we disagree. Applicants are likely to succeed on the merits of their claim that the secretary lacked authority to impose the mandate. Administrative agencies are creatures of statute. They accordingly possess only the authority that Congress has provided. And we would argue and what the Constitution allows Congress to provide. (laughs) But they're not going to go that far. Um, The secretary has ordered 84 million Americans to either obtain a COVID-19 vaccine or undergo weekly medical testing at their own expense. This is no everyday exercise of federal power. It is instead a significant encroachment into the lives and health of a vast number of employees. We expect Congress to speak clearly when and then they're, they're quoting um, another case. We expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. There can be little doubt that OSHA's mandate qualifies as an exercise of such authority. The question then is whether the act plainly authorizes the secretary's mandate. It does not. The act empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. Uh, So that kind of goes to why they were like uh, italicizing occupational earlier. They're, They're making it clear that like OSHA doesn't have the power to regulate pandemics or public health. It's, it's specifically, uh, the workplace. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. And then a bunch of citations, uh, and then they, they cite a piece of legislation that says it directs the secretary secretary to set occupational safety and health standards, um, authorizing the secretary to impose emergency temporary standards necessary to protect employees from grave danger in the workplace. Confirming the point, the act's provisions typically speak to hazards the employees face at work, and no provision of the act addresses public health more generally, which falls outside the OSHA's sphere of expertise. I'm going to just wait every time that I cut out because I keep I keep cutting out a little bit. So I might pause every once in a while. That's right. The dissent pr- pr- protests that we are imposing a limit found no place in the governing statute. Uh, and that was Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Not so. 
It is the text of the agency's organic act that repeatedly makes clear that OSHA is charged with regulating occupational hazards and the safety and health of employees. The Solicitor General does not dispute that OSHA is limited to regulating work-related dangers. So they're just going to say that they do have these powers. um, Not going to question the constitutionality, just if Congress has given them again. Mm -hmm. She instead argues that the risk of contracting COVID-19 qualifies as such a danger. We cannot agree. Although COVID-19 is a risk that occurs in many workplaces, it is not an occupational hazard in most. COVID-19 can and does spread at home, in schools, during sporting events, and everywhere else that people gather. That kind of universal risk is no different from the day-to-day dangers that all face from crime, air pollution, or any number of communicable diseases. Permitting OSHA to regulate the hazards of daily life simply because most Americans have jobs and face those same risks while on the clock would significantly expand OSHA's regulatory authority without clear congressional authorization. That seems clear to me. (laughs) Um, The dissent contends that OSHA's mandate is comparable to a fire or sanitation regulation imposed by the agency, but a vaccine mandate is strikingly unlike the workplace regulations that OSHA has typically imposed. A vaccination, after all, cannot be undone at the end of the workday. Contrary to the dissent's contention, imposing a vaccine mandate on 84 million Americans in response to a worldwide pandemic is simply not part of what the agency was built for. That is not to say OSHA lacks authority to regulate occupation-specific risks related to COVID-19, where the virus poses a special danger because of the particular features of an employee's job or workplace, targeted regulations are plainly permissible. We do not doubt, for example, that OSHA could regulate researchers who work with the COVID-19 virus. So too could OSHA regulate risks associated with working in particularly crowded or cramped environments. But the danger present in such workplaces differs in both degree and kind from the everyday risk of contracting COVID-19 that all face. OSHA's indiscriminate approach fails to account for this crucial distinction between occupational risk and risk more generally. And according Accordingly, the mandate takes on the character of a general public health measure rather than an occupational safety or health standard. Um, It's very interesting because you kind of brought up this point earlier that if they had chosen to do this um, in another agency uh, that, that could, you know, conceivably have these powers, they within the framework that the Supreme court is arguing right now, it would be totally justified if right. it, if it's within the statutory limitations of that agency, yeah. which is, which is terrifying. And that's why, you know, we would argue that the, the argument really has to be on the basis of the constitutional authority, not whether or not Congress, they're, they're not going, going that broad. They're, they're arguing very narrowly that Congress has given this authority democratically, they would say, um, and that seemed to be a theme throughout a lot of the more conservative um, interpretations of the court. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things occur to me in the middle of that. Uh, in, in the first place, let's just assume for our argument that the uh, vaccines uh, work and that the um, COVID is the deadly uh pandemic that we've been led to believe, even though I don't think that's necessarily true. Let's just assume that. Uh, 
like we talked about before, I just don't think that um, even in the case of a deadly virus that the um, Congress can can regulate uh, individuals' lives in the way that they're trying to do. And the, and the Supreme Court is uh, essentially um, saying it's okay for them to do. I just don't, I don't buy that. And so that's something, I think that's an argument that's missed by the court right here. If they had given statutory authority, as he said, to the right agency, then they would have probably said that's fine. But then, okay, so, you know, we have first principles that keep coming back to that majority rule, minority rights. So, yeah, the Congress could probably say, all right, um, everybody has to take a vaccine mandated for everybody in the country. Uh, where where minority rights come in that. So that, that's a two-part idea with our uh, first principles. Majority rule, but minority rights. You know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger said, you know, uh, blank your rights. Did you hear that, what he said yeah. about it? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the prevailing attitude. And I'm afraid that at least some of the uh, justices on the Supreme Court, um, they would agree with that sentiment. Okay. Yeah, and, and it's important um, maybe to clarify like what we – what bodies we think um, can protect minority rights. I think my stance would be that this is where the states come in. They would say that the con- that the Congress is totally within its powers to um, pass a statute that gives an agency this authority. They would say that, but I would say that the states then have the ability to nullify that to protect minorities. Um, I don't know if they would go that far, um, but what I can say is that regardless of whether or not they, they go that far, far or whether or not the constitution allows it i think it does we can like we we discussed this in the last one states have there have been plenty of examples of of states nullifying uh federal law even when the court upholds such a thing so like like dc v heller i think you you told me about um Mm -hmm. think of all of the states that regulate firearms beyond what dc v heller says um also just any marijuana law you know any marijuana law that was upheld by the courts, Gonzalez v. Reich, was was held up by the court. Um, and still, Colorado, you know, has how long has it been? They've they've been selling weed in Colorado for how long? Um, Montana now does it. So and Washington State, yeah, I think they they've uh, legalized virtually all uh, quote unquote uh, illegal substances that are illegal on the federal level. Uh, you know, I think even heroin. Crack cocaine. I don't know. Uh, Washington State has just said, "Well, the heck with the federal government on these things." And so the precedent is there. Uh, and it's interesting that whenever um, a quote-unquote red state uh, threatens to uh, nullify a law, you know, the very first c- critics are Colorado and Washington State. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I. I remember I posted something somewhere on social media and I, I said, you know, conservative states need to start taking um, just learning from those states and, and start to nullify like gun laws and stuff like this. And someone responded to me. They're like, well, how dare you compare um, gun rights with, you know, uh, weed laws or something like that? <laughs> and, and I was like, well, don't you know how analogies work? It's like we're comparing the principle here. We're not, you know, like yeah. I'm not saying that guns are the same thing as it's just it's ridiculous. And um, 
that that's kind of how their theory of governance is. It's just in a very ad hoc fashion. It's very utilitarian. It's not based in principle ever. It's right. whatever we like right now. We're not going to we're going to use the Supreme Court to do it. We're going to use a state to do it. We're going to use the federal government to do it. But there's no principle. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, let's keep reading and sure. get to the concurrence. So finishing this, it says, in looking for a legislative support for the vaccine mandate, the dissent turns to the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. That legislation signed into law on March 11th, 2021, of course, said nothing about OSHA's vaccine mandate, which was not announced until six months later. In fact, the most noteworthy action concerning the vaccine mandate by either House of Congress has has been a majority vote for the has been a majority vote of the Senate disapproving the regulation on December 8th, 2021. So they're still talking within the bounds of as long as Congress passes this, it's all right. It is telling that OSHA in its half century of existence has never before adopted a broad public health regulation of this kind, addressing a threat that is untethered in any causal sense from the workplace. This lack of history historical precedent coupled with the breadth of authority that the secretary now claims is a telling indication that the mandate extends beyond the agency's legitimate reach. The equities do not justify withholding interim relief. We are told by the states and the employers that OSHA's mandate will force them to incur billions of dollars in unrecoverable compliance costs and will cost hundreds of thousands of employees to leave their jobs, potentially millions. I would contend Um, Mm -hmm. for its part. The federal government says that the mandate will save over 6,500 lives and prevent hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations. OSHA response 83. Um, I froze again. It is not (laughs) our role to weigh such trade-offs in our system of government. That is the responsible responsibility of those. Wait, of those chosen by the people through democratic processes. Although Congress has indisputably given OSHA the power to regulate occupational dangers, it has not given that agency the power to regulate public health more broadly. Requiring the vaccination of 84 million Americans selected simply because they work for employers with more than 100 employees certainly falls in the latter category. The applications for stays presented to Justice Kavanaugh and by him referred to the court are granted. OSHA's COVID-19 vaccination and testing emergency temporary standard is stayed pending disposition of the applicant's petitions for review in the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and disposition of the applicant's petitions for writs of search. How do you pronounce that? We we discussed this in, in class. Writs of certiori? Yeah, cert writs. That's the easy way out. That's the way to do it. (laughs) If such writs are timely sought, should the petitions for writs, cert writs, be denied, this order shall terminate automatically. In the event the petitions for cert writs are granted, the order shall terminate upon the sending down of the judgment of this court. It is so ordered. Um, And then we have the concurrence. Do you have any more thoughts before we get to the concurrence? Yeah, so uh, another uh, first almost first principle i think uh the the question comes up once in a while you don't hear very often because it's just an assumed thing now but can congress actually uh delegate its authority to another entity like uh, the bureaucracy Uh, so um i i don't think they can or should 
maybe that's a better way of saying it. Uh, but uh, look at where we've we've come now. And now uh, these agencies uh, like OSHA, uh, they're given deference in the court system. So whatever they think is actually a standard that the court uses to decide what is and what isn't allowed. So not only you remove the authority from Congress for that, you've granted an authority that is certainly not constitutional to these bureaucracies. And it just occurs to me every time we talk about something like this, uh, we give we give deference, of course, give deference to those people and they shouldn't. And you it's, know, it's my so, understanding that what, what we give deference to them for is the interpretation of their powers, too. It's right. It's whatever Congress has delegated to them. They have the authority to interpret that and the courts will de- defer to that interpretation. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's easily how this could have gone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I All think right. they, the, the concurring opinion actually gets a little bit into, um, I forget what the, the, the doctrine is. They'll, they'll bring it up. Well, I think okay. it's called the major questions doctrine. Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, so it's, uh, the concurring opinion is Gorsuch, Thomas and Alito. Uh, The central question we face today is who decides? No one doubts that the COVID-19 pandemic has posed challenges for every American or that our state, local and national governments all have roles to play in combating the disease. The only question is whether an administrative agency in Washington, one charged with overseeing workplace safety, may mandate the vaccination or regular testing of 84 million people. Or whether, as 27 states before us submit, that work belongs to state and local governments across the country and the people's elected representatives in Congress. This court is not a public health authority. I love it. So they're, they're saying we, we just can't decide this. Um, but it is charged with resolving disputes about which authorities possess the power to make the laws that govern us under the Constitution and the laws of the land. So they right up front, they're saying that the question here isn't whether or not this is a good policy. It's who has the authority to implement this policy, this policy, who has a say here. And that is the question that they should ask. Yes. You know, it's whether it's effective or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, It's the actual constitutional principle that they have to, uh, they should be deciding on. And that's why the dissents are so ridiculous because uh, they're all worried about the effect that, this decision is going to have on people. Well, okay, we can worry about that, but that doesn't, you know, take away your responsibility to interpret the Constitution as written. So, yeah, I froze again. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he continues. I start with this court's precedence. There is no question that state and local authorities possess considerable power to regulate public health. They enjoy the, quote, general power of governing, including all sovereign sovereign powers envisioned by the Constitution and not specifically vested in the federal government. Um, And in fact, states have pursued a variety of measures in response to the current pandemic. Um, The federal government's powers, however, are not general, but limited and divided. See McCullough v. Maryland. Not only must... 
the federal government properly invoke a constitutionally enumerated source of authority to regulate in this area or an or any other, it must also act consistently with the Constitution's separation of powers. Hang on. Okay. We'll just wait for him to get back. I, I see that there's two people watching right now. Um, I'm glad this stream is working out. I've had a few interruptions, but this is my first time actually streaming. Um, please go listen after, after the stream to my previous podcast with Mr. Deming. I've done three now, um, I interviewed him and then we did a July 4th episode where we read the Declaration of Independence. And then um, we did another about January 6th last week. And today we're talking about um, the Supreme Court decisions that came out today. Uh, just reading through the decision if you're just now checking in. Um, and remember to go subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever else. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my handle is M Liam McCollum. Um, but yeah, we'll just wait for Deming to get back. All right. You ready? Ready. Okay. Do you have any more thoughts about what was said? I, I, I do appreciate that he's just appealing, appealing to the enumerated powers. Um, it's just that his interpretation of the enumerated powers are incorrect. The fact that he thinks, or I think it is that he thinks that, OSHA would even that Congress would even have the authority to create an institution. And like you said, um, give up power in that way. Right. So I think you're right, but at least a um, Supreme court justice is actually saying things like enumerated powers. It's not very often that we, we hear that, you know, uh, do you have time for a kind of an anecdote? Uh, yeah, go uh, ahead. Uh, kind of laughing at myself. Um, I was reading about uh, Clarence Thomas and some of the things that he said recently, particularly with with the uh, response to the coronavirus. Uh, and he hasn't said a lot in some ways, but anyway, I was thinking how much I appreciated the guy. And then uh, I realized that the guy's black. So here I am. Uh, maybe a middle-aged white guy of privilege and admiring a black guy. Uh, it just struck me as kind of odd that, that no one I think would appreciate that as much as somebody like me who a former conservative now more libertarian than ever, uh, who really uh, appreciates this uh, black justice, but I didn't really I didn't recognize him necessarily as black. Yeah. I didn't care what color the guy was. Uh, so anyway, I just thought that was kind of funny. Uh, it is hilarious guy. that it's it's kind of ignored by the left, especially with his like uh, affirmative action cases, um, his, his opinion on affirmative action and stuff like that. He is one of the best justices I think we've had in a long time. Um, yeah. the, the only sad thing is that he I cut out again. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he appears to really like executive authority. So I, I was kind of scared, honestly, I thought that he would, he would rule in favor of the mandate just because he is in favor of executive authority, especially during, you know, like kind of the, the Bush era type stuff, those type questions, you know, it wasn't really right. clear. <laughs> right. I think he's been good for a long time. In some ways, I like uh, his interpretations better than Scalia, and I really liked Antonin Scalia. Uh, so anyway, um, I, 
I expected him to rule against this mandate, uh, to be honest with you. Um, and I did read his dissent in the other uh, case. And I don't know that we'll have time. And I don't have a lot uh, to add to that. But I, I do think uh, he deserves quite a bit of credit in this case, in both cases. If we, if we get through, we can at least maybe talk about it or or talk about the dissent because I think it is important that um, we really talk about like how how today wasn't a complete win. Um, I, I think even just the fact that we were waiting to hear from the court is a sign that you know we aren't in the best of position. Like if if Donald Trump didn't win, we would have had three liberal justices on the court, and this would look completely different. Right. Absolutely. You know, and that uh, conversation that we heard last night uh, by one of the members in that group, um, I think completely overlooks the um, the positive outcome of the Trump presidency. And that is getting three justices on the Supreme Court uh, who at least have a chance of seeing things um not our way, but differently than the uh, the progressives in this country. Yeah. That this 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 entire episode of the Biden presidency, uh, the usurper in chief, uh, is would have been different, and uh, I think not for the better. Yeah. So say what you want about President Trump, uh, but I think at least uh, his appointments may have forestalled some of the horribleness that uh, that would have happened uh, to, up to now during this time. Uh, I, I think it's terrifying to think about it. I don't even like to think about what would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I really, I, I've been trying to emphasize on Twitter because a lot of people are excited. It's, I, I really think that like, you know, we really have to get to a point where the states do insist to protect minority rights. Um, because if, if we are, at a position in this country where we really are just, you know, everyone's waiting on their, on the edge of their seats just to hear what nine lawyers have to say. I think that that's, we've already almost lost. I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to just communicate is that like, we need the states to stand up. We need the states to protect minority rights. Um, like you said earlier. Um, but yeah, I'm going to finish this. Okay. Opinion. The federal government's powers however, are not general, but limited and divided. Um, I'm going to skip down. We already read that part. I might read a little bit of what I already read. It must also act consistently with the constitution's separation of powers. And when it comes to the obligation, this court has established at least one firm rule. We expect Congress to speak clearly if it wishes to assign to an executive agency decisions of vast economic and political significance. We sometimes call this the major questions doctrine. So the major questions doctrine um, is just a question of, you know, whether or not courts should defer to agencies um, and their statutory interpretations that concern questions of, uh, it says here, vast economic or political significance. So when there are political questions brought to the court, um, it, the, the conservative take is that we are not a political body. You know, we, we defer to Congress. Um, and then there's also the question of whether or not they defer to the agencies. Um, OSHA's mandate fails that doctrine's test. The agency claims that the power 
claims the power to force 84 million Americans to receive a vaccine or undergo regular testing. By any measure, that is a claim of power to resolve a question of vast national significance. Yet Congress has nowhere clearly assigned so much power to OSHA. Approximately two years have passed since this pandemic began. Vaccines have been available for more than a year. Over that span, Congress has adopted several major pieces of legislation aimed at combating COVID-19. Examples are the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. But Congress has chosen not to afford OSHA or any federal agency the authority to issue a vaccine. Indeed, a majority of the Senate even voted to disapprove OSHA's regulation. It seems, too, that the agency pursued its regulatory initiative only as a legislative workaround. Far less consequential agency rules have run afoul of the major questions doctrine. Um, it is hard to see how this one does not. What is OSHA's reply? It directs us to 29 USC, US code uh, 655C1. And that statutory subsection, Congress authorized OSHA to issue emergency regulations upon determining that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful, and that such emergency standards are necessary to protect employees from such dangers. According to this agency, this provision supplies it with almost unlimited discretion to mandate new nationwide rules in response to the pandemic so long as the rules are reasonably related to the workplace. <laughs> the court rightly applies the major questions doctrine and concludes that this loan statutory subsection does not clearly authorize OSHA's mandate. This piece of legislation was not adopted in response to the pandemic, but some 50 years ago at the time of OSHA's creation. Since then, OSHA has relied on it to issue only comparatively modest rules addressing dangers uniquely prevalent inside the workplace, like asbestos and rare chemicals. Um, uh, as the agency itself explained to a federal court less than two years ago, the statute does not authorize OSHA to issue sweeping health standards that affect workers' lives outside the workplace. Yet that is precisely what the agency seeks to do now, regulate not just what happens inside the workplace, but induce individuals to undertake a medical procedure that affects their lives outside the workplace. Historically, such matters have been regulated at the state level by authorities who enjoy broader and more general governmental powers. Meanwhile, while at the federal level, OSHA arguably is not even the agency most associated with the public health regulation. And in the rare instances when Congress has sought to mandate vaccination, it has done so expressly. We have nothing like that here. Why does the major questions doctrine matter? It ensures that the national government's power to make the laws that govern us remain where Article One of the Constitution says it belongs with the people's elected representatives. If administrative agencies seek to regulate the daily lives and liberties of millions of Americans, the doctrine says they must at least be able to trace that power to a clear grant of authority from Congress. In this respect, the major question doctrine is closely related to what is sometimes called the non-delegation doctrine. Indeed, for decades, courts have cited the non-delegation doctrine as a reason to apply the major questions doctrine. Both are designed to protect the separation of powers and ensure that any new laws governing the lives of Americans are subject to the robust democratic processes the Constitution demands. 
The non-delegation doctrine ensures democratic accountability by preventing Congress from intentionally delegating its legislative powers to unelected officials. Sometimes lawmakers may be tempted to delegate power to agencies to reduce the degree to which they will be held accountable for unpopular actions. But the Constitution imposes some boundaries here. If Congress could hand off all its legislative powers to unelected agency officials, it would dash the whole scheme of our Constitution and enable intrusions into the private lives and freedoms of Americans by bare edict rather than only with the consent of their elected representatives. The president. Oh, that's a case or a case. They're citing a case right there. Uh, The major questions doctrine serves. similar function by guarding against unintentional oblique or otherwise unlikely delegations of the legislative power. Sometimes Congress passes broadly worded statutes seeking to resolve important policy questions in a field while leaving an agency to work out the details of implementation. Later, the agency may seek to exploit some gap, ambiguity, or doubtful expression in Congress's statutes to assume responsibilities far beyond its initial assignment. The major questions doctrine guards against this possibility by recognizing that Congress does not usually hide elephants and mouse holes. In this way, the doctrine is a vital check on expansive and aggressive assertions of executive authority. Um, Whichever the doctrine, the point is the same. Both serve to prevent government by bureaucracy supplanting government by the people. And he's citing Scalia. And both hold their lessons for today's case. On the one hand, OSHA claims the power to issue a nationwide mandate on a major question but cannot trace its authority to do so to any clear congressional mandate. On the other hand, if the statutory subsection the agency cites really did endow OSHA with the power it asserts, that law would likely constitute an unconstitutional delegation of legislative authority. So he's actually saying that even if they did, it would be unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Under OSHA's reading, the law would afford it almost unlimited discretion and certainly impose no specific restrictions that meaningful meaningfully constrain the agency. OSHA would become little more than a roving commission to inquire into evils and upon discovery, correct them. Either way, the point is the same one Chief Justice Marshall made in 1825. There are some important subjects which must be entirely regulated by the legislature itself and others of less interest in which a general provision may be made and power given to others to fill up the details. And no one's account does this mandate qualify as some detail. The question before us is not how to respond to the pandemic, but who has the power to do so? The answer is clear. Under the laws it stands today, that power rests with the states and Congress, not OSHA. In saying this much, we do not impugn the intentions behind the agency's mandate. Instead, we only discharge our duty to enforce the law's demands when it comes to the question who may govern the lives of 84 million Americans. Respecting those demands may be trying in times of stress. But if this court were to abide them only in more tranquil conditions, declarations of emergencies would never end and the liberties our constitution separations of powers (laughs) seek to preserve would amount to little. I think that that concurring opinion is amazing and spot on. Yes. I, I didn't expect them to to uh, get into the actual um, powers of Congress there too and delegating authority, but I think they're spot on right there. And so I. I think it um, I think it differs a little bit from 
the controlling opinion. Um, I think that it's more precise and I, yeah. I'm very happy with it. It, uh, I think it covers more ground, uh, but it, it did say, I can't remember exactly. I was trying to write, uh, while you're reading, uh, it did say that, that, uh, Congress still has, uh, the power resides in the States and in Congress to, uh, to legislate, uh, in response to COVID or a pandemic. Well, I don't think that's true. <laughs> and that's also very broad because I don't know what they mean. Like if Congress and the states have that authority, if Congress rules on it, can the states have a differing ruling or a different exactly. opinion? So it's it's very broad there. But everything else, I think, was spot on with OSHA's right. authority and, and um, Congress itself. Um, but now we actually are getting to the dissent. I don't think the dissent's too long, but I would like to get through it just to kind of show you know, what the more liberal interpretation of the court is. We've we've mentioned it a little bit before, but I think reading the, their actual words kind of will help draw that out because as as we mentioned earlier, that Sotomayor made no distinction between police powers of states and the power of Congress or of the federal government. And she seemingly hasn't read the constitution. It'll be interesting to see how many times they actually mention the constitution or separation of powers. I doubt they will, but um, it was good to see Gorsuch talk about it. Yes, uh, I agree. I I hate to move on before uh, we talk briefly about this one point, but um, so is it your assumption that reading that last uh, uh, part of the concurring opinion um, is it your assumption that uh, agencies that operate outside the scope of the law, um, who use more power than they're granted, uh, no clear grant of authority, but continue to use that, uh, that their actions are unconstitutional? Yeah, and I think I, I'd be interested to see, like, if, I mean, Gorsuch seems to think that, um, which is, I think great. I, I thought, I thought Gorsuch was the one where we weren't really sure about, um, I think all of the appointments, it wasn't really clear. Um, I think Barrett was in the controlling opinion rather than the concurring one. Um, so she doesn't appear to be taking as strong of a stance, but, uh, it's great to see that Gorsuch and Alito and (laughs) yeah, well, so Kavanaugh also would have been in the controlling opinion. Should I'm going to have to take a quick break again. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, no problem. I think I might go back after this stream and edit out these edit out these spots afterwards, but we're just going to wait for them again. And then we're going to read the, the dissenting opinion. Um, it should be interesting because this case I think is the perfect kind of example of the differing opinions and the different philosophies of how the federal government works and um, the court works and, it's super fascinating. So, uh, the dissents, the dissenting opinion is exactly who you would expect it to be. It's Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan. There was also another case that was decided today. It was, uh, the Biden v. Missouri case. And we think that it probably needs to be highlighted just as much as this one, because, um, the scope of both of these cases aren't as broad or aren't as precise as we would really want them to be. Uh, And like I said earlier, it's just, I mean, it's the fact that we are even waiting for um, nine people 
unelected people, glorified lawyers, glorified philosophers, just to decide whether or not, you know, the federal government has the authority to do this is extremely concerning in the first place. It's like, I don't consider this a win that, that, you know, they, (laughs) the government was just like, oh yeah, no, you can have a little bit of freedom. If, if the government is granting us freedom, if the government is the one who says, yeah, actually, no, we don't have the authority to do this. They're still in control. So the fact that we were even waiting, we were even waiting on our, on the edge of our seats for this opinion is concerning to me. Um, and I don't consider this a complete win. It's, it's a complete win when, we're no longer looking to them and, and it's the States that are protecting rights and, um, or individuals. If individuals insist on their rights, then, then we have them. So, um, that's kind of my thoughts and I'm going to just message him again, just to see if he's trying to get on. All right. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. I don't know what happened there. Liam, sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. There, there are people in the comments who, uh, said that StreamYard is pretty glitchy um, and that they could hear me. So, yeah, I was just telling them a little bit about our ideas about the court and how um, until until we're no longer waiting for nine justices and nine, you know, philosophers to give us a little bit of liberty, <laughs> then then we're not really free. Um, but, yeah, if, if you're ready, I'm going to just start reading the dissenting opinion. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So like I said earlier, this is Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan um, dissenting. Says, every day COVID-19 poses grave dangers to the citizens of this country and particularly to its workers. The disease has by now killed almost 1 million Americans and hospitalized almost 4 million. It spreads by person-to-person contact and confined indoor spaces, so causes harm in nearly all workplace environments. And in those environments, more than any others, individuals have little control and therefore little capacity to mitigate risk. COVID-19, in short, is a menace in work settings. The proof is all around us. Since the disease's onset, most Americans have seen their workplaces transformed. And um, goes back to what you were saying earlier. It's like, we could grant that this is true. Like, if you actually believe that this was true, um, that, you know, it's continuingly to kill off Americans and it, it's the worst that it's ever been. Like Sotomayor had, had argued then that like that, that that's an argument that you can have, but this isn't question, the question here. The question of the court is, and always has been who has the authority to do this. Um, and if you have any thoughts while I'm reading, just feel free to interrupt. Well, uh, before we go on, uh, I think that might even be framed a little bit inaccurately. Uh, no apologies, by the way. Yeah. And that is that, uh, well, I think you believe this. Uh, we've talked about this before. Uh, who gives a rat's about what the Supreme Court says? Ultimately, uh, they, they can't enforce it. And this is clearly a government overreach, both mandates. Uh, I actually think that the, uh, the, uh, court allowing uh, the mandate for healthcare workers is is uh, as egregious is just about anything they've done, and for reasons we can talk about. But they can't enforce that decision. Just somebody just because five it was five four five justices say that they can doesn't mean that they can. 
or that they should be able to. They don't have the authority to do it. They don't have the constitutional authority to to tell anybody uh, yeah. to take this uh, this vaccine. It's it's insanity, uh, particularly now when I, I mean. Obviously, you know, we've talked about the efficacy, uh, whether or not they're effective doesn't matter. I mean, they're, they're terrible, terribly uh, ineffective. And that is coming to light more and more. So the push to continue these vaccine mandates is even more ludicrous, uh, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, now that we know how uh, ineffective and, in fact, how dangerous they are. Yeah, I've been, I've been saying like you don't want to make the argument hinge off of the efficacy of either, right? You want to nope. you make your argument you want to make your argument grounded in liberty and and the principles of liberty and freedom. But I mean, the fact that they aren't, you know, that doing that well and like, you know, the the admissions that we've heard from the CDC just within the last 2 weeks, it's like it only strengthens our case. Um and Totally. Oh, yeah. It, I cut out again. But I totally agree. Um, I I think that really we are in a position where governors need to stand up and say, especially in Montana, it's a weird situation now where it's kind of unclear. Like the, the court struck down this mandate, the OSHA mandate. So those people are OK. But is is the law that was passed by Montana that prohibits vaccine discrimination, does that still conflict with this new ruling by the Supreme Court. So there's going to be there's going to be this battle in our hospitals in Montana where, you know, these facilities that get Medicare and Medicaid are going to likely appeal to the federal government because they're holding funds over their heads and the state law is completely counter to it. And it, it goes back to one of my previous podcasts that I did with Adam Thune, um, just the idea that reliance is compliance. And like, not only do we need to decentralize, we also need to just create completely separate systems. Right. We, we need, we need gov the governor to say like, well, no, our state has this position. We're going to continue to protect our rights. And I think there, there might be a silver lining to this case. Um, the, the case that upholds the, um, the Medicare and Medicaid mandate, because what it might do is it might drive people out of these institutions and we might create alternatives. Um, if, if there are people who are really like they're holding to their principles, like Montana did pass some of the best free market healthcare legislation this session. And I think we're actually the best state when it comes to free market healthcare now. Yep. Um, so we need like direct primary care institutions to just say, yeah, we're not offering Medicare and Med Medicaid. We're not taking it and we're not going to implement the vaccine mandate. We are just not following suit. And that's why we need a strong governor or someone or strong indiv individuals, which is more preferable who just stand up and say, we're not complying. I don't care what the federal government says. I don't care what the Supreme court says. I don't care you know, I'm not waiting to hear what the Supreme Court says. I'm just not following. I insist upon my rights, so I'm taking my rights. And that really needs to be the principle, I think. Um, and I think that there might be a silver lining because of that. Do you think there's going to be pushback? I'm not sure. I don't I don't know if what the governor's position is going to be now. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get uh, Jennifer Carlson. She's a legislator from Montana. She she backed the vaccine discrimination piece of legislation. Um, and 
I'm trying to get her on the show just to see what her thoughts are on this and just like bounce around the ideas of nullifying a Supreme Court decision. See if she's in favor of it. See if the Gianforte administration seems to be in favor of it. It would be cool to at least start that dialogue here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I get the feeling that uh, Governor Gianforte, uh, even though he's been pretty good on quite a few things, uh, is less pretty much like everybody else in America. And that is, well, the Supreme Court ruled. That's it. That's the end of it. Well, Dred Scott versus Sanford, Bussey versus Ferguson. They they were, I guess, the Supreme Court ruled. We're going to have to follow that. Yeah. You know, so I think that there's some wiggle room for him, uh, and I, I think he needs to use it, particularly in Montana. As he said, uh, we're making such great progress in in medical freedom initiatives. I uh, I'd hate to see us backslide now, and I'd hate to see Montana beholden in any way, shape, or form to the national government. There, uh, I mean, Sonia Sotomayor, you kidding me? She doesn't even know what's going on, and she's going to make a decision based on uh, either faulty information or um, a lie that she's told herself. Yeah, if we, if we could have another governor like Schweitzer who just says, okay, like, <laughs> pull funding. <laughs> like, yeah, do it. go ahead. Yeah, yeah because, Don't let Montanans fly on planes. All right, fine. <laughs> and the and the chances are is that they don't like like we discussed in the previous podcast. I don't I don't think that they would, but even if they do, we just don't want to be beholden to them, and we don't yeah. have to. We don't want to be reliant on them um, because there are countless cases where they have threatened to pull funding because we wouldn't comply. And we caved. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, but blame, but I don't blame us at all. It's a lot of money. Yeah, and it's. I mean, like I think a lot of people are afraid of, of losing their jobs right now in, in the healthcare industry, but they're already kicking you out because of this mandate. If, if you are sticking to your principles. So let's just, <laughs> you know, let's take a stand. Um, but yeah, let's, let's get back to this uh, ruling. Sorry. They haven't <laughs> mentioned the constitution yet. So we'll, we'll see how long it takes them. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, let's see where I was at. And, and notice how they're making um, rational arguments about like how um, bad the virus is and what we should do to prevent it, and they're not making constitutional arguments at all. Um, so the administrative agency charged with ensuring health and safety in workplaces did what Congress commanded it to. It took action to address COVID-19's continuing threats in those spaces. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration issued an emergency temporary standard requiring either vaccination or masking and testing to protect American workers. The standard falls within the core of the agency's mission to protect employees from grave danger that comes from new hazards or exposure to harmful agents. OSHA OSHA estimates, and there is no ground for disputing that the standard will save over 6,500 lives and prevent over 250,000 hospitalizations in six months time. Yet today, excuse me, hang on. That's pretty specific numbers. I wonder how OSHA came up with those. Did they ask (laughs) Anthony Fauci? I'm sure they did. (laughs) I do wonder what agency or um, what media companies are listening to, because it's like, CNN fact checked them on on the child stat, the child hospitalization stat. So, mm-hmm. who are they listening to? I don't um, know. 
Yet today, the court issues a stay that prevents the standard from taking effect. In our view, the court's order seriously misapplies the applicable legal standards, and in, in so doing, it stymies the federal government's ability to counter the unparalleled threat that COVID-19 poses to our nation's workers. Um, so it's interesting. They are, again, appealing to legal standards and just these contrived things that these philosophers have come up with in their minds um, that have no basis in the Constitution. It's just rational arguments that they came to themselves and that they continue to appeal to. And you can find standards that point towards whatever belief you want. Like, like if you, if you want to argue that this, this mandate isn't justified, you could find a standard that helps support that. Like there's so many precedents throughout the court's history that they could appeal to. And it just shows why, like, if you, if you don't have jurisprudence based in the constitution, then like, it's just anything, anything that one justice believes. Right. Can I interject something here that I think uh, appropriate? Yeah, go ahead. So um, over the course of our history, has the uh, general government, national government gotten more or less powerful? It's gotten considerably more powerful. So which of the branches is supposed to keep that in check? Well, it's, it's supposed to be the judicial branch. And so they have actively made the federal government more and more powerful over our history. So that's a huge indictment, right? So just looking at it from that standpoint, uh, what, what you just said, uh, I think you can go back and read that uh, in your head and say, oh, yeah. That's too bad. <laughs> yeah. Re- read that comment really quick. That's uh, my friend, Daniel. I'm going on his podcast tomorrow. Okay. Says, What's the constitution? Is that a brand of toilet paper? Mm-hmm. Well, it, uh, some people treat it like that. Um, you know, I think you and I have more reverence for it, but uh, Lysander Spooner, 150, 130 years ago said, eh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's go on. Well, what, what is interesting, I'll make another point on that is like, so in a certain sense, the prog- progressives on the court will say the constitution doesn't matter in a certain sense. It's old, it's an ancient document, whatever, but they're still using the institutions that the constitution created. So they're like, in a sense, appealing towards it and using the, the institutions created by the constitution, but expanding it. So it's like, where where our argument, if we are to appeal to the idea that the Constitution isn't legitimate because we haven't consented to it, if we were to make that, you know, more libertarian argument, we would say, well, so the institutions go too. <laughs> they're right. not going to go that far. They're, it's more of like an anar- anarcho tyranny system where they're like, well, the Constitution doesn't matter, but we're still going to use this tool, this this gun. Right. That's good analysis. But um. All right, let's see where I was at. Acting outside of its competence and without legal basis, the court displaces the judgments of the government's officials given the responsibility to respond to workplace health emergencies. We respectfully dissent. 
1970, Congress enacted the Occupational Safety and Health Act to assure so far as possible every working man and woman in the nation's safe and healthful working conditions and to preserve our human resources, including by developing innovative methods, techniques, and approaches for dealing with occupational safety and health problems. To that end, the act empowers OSHA to issue mandatory occupational safety and health standards applicable to business affecting interstate commerce. Still more, the act requires OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard to take immediate effect upon publication in the Federal Register if the agency determines A, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, and B, that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employee, employees from such danger. Acting under that statutory command, OSHA promulgated the, the emergency temporary standard at issue here. The standard obligates employers with at least 100 employees to require that an employee either one, be vaccinated against COVID-19, or two, take a weekly COVID-19 test and wear a mask at work. The standard thus encourages vaccination, but permits employers to adopt a masking or testing policy instead. The majority obscures this choice by insistently calling a po the policy a vaccine mandate. Further, the standard does not apply in a variety of settings. It exempts employees who are at a reduced risk of infection because they work from home, alone, or outdoors. It makes exceptions based on religious objections or medical necessity, and the standard does not constrain any employer able to show that its conditions, practices, means, methods, operations, or process, processes made its workplace equivalent, equivalently safe and healthful. Consistent with statutory requirements, the standard lasts only six months. Multiple lawsuits challenging the standard were filed in the federal courts of appeals. The applicants asked the courts to stay the standards implementation while their legal challenges were pending. The lawsuits were consolidated in the court of appeals for the Sixth Circuit. That courts dissolved a stay previously entered, thus allowing the standard to take effect. The applicants now ask this court to stay the standard for the duration of the litigation. Today, the court grants that request con contravening clear legal principles and itself causing grave danger to, danger to the nation's workforce. The legal standard governing a request for relief pending appellate review is settled. To obtain that relief, the applicant must show, one, that their claims are likely to prevail, two, that denying them relief would lead to irreparable injury, and three, that granting relief would not harm the public interest. So there's just another standard that they've, they've made up that they're going to um, implement. And and to say that there isn't any irreparable injury, I think I think the... Uh, controlling opinion actually demonstrated that there is. Yeah, in fact, well, they were pretty. Uh, I think somebody was pretty clear that uh, they they get the vaccine for work, right, and then they can't unvaccinate themselves to go home. So, regardless, the effect is uh, full time. It's not just while they're at work. Yeah, I can't remember who said that. Yeah, it was in the it was in the controlling opinion, the the main one. Um, I, I don't think the concurring opinion brought that up. But they also did mention that, like all of the legal fees, the compliance fees. Um, but continuing, moreover, because the applicants seek judicial intervention that the Sixth Circuit withheld below, 
this court should not issue relief unless the applicants can establish that their entitlement to relief is indisputably clear. Another standard that just pull out of their heads. Um, none of these requirements is met here. The applicants are not likely to prevail under any proper care view of the law. OSHA's rule perfectly fits the language of the app applicable statutory provision. Once again, that provision commands, not just enables, but commands OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard whenever it, whenever it determines A, that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards, and B, that such emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Each and every part of that provision demands that in the circumstances here, OSHA act to prevent to prevent workplace harm. The virus that causes COVID-19 is a new hazard as well as a physically harmful agent. <laughs> Merriam Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. No way. <laughs> so they're going to they're going to appeal to uh, precedent that they've they've uh, discussed before as well as the Collegiate Dictionary before they even talk about the constitution. I don't think they've mentioned the constitution once. Yeah, I haven't heard anything. Um so yeah, they're they're just defining all the terms that they've talked about as agent, chemically, physically, or biologically active principle, defining virus as the causative agent of an infectious disease. The virus also poses a grave danger to millions of employees. As of the time OSHA promulgated its rule, more than 725,000 Americans had died of COVID-19 and millions more had been hospitalized. Um, since then, and they're citing um, the CDC, since then, the disease has continued to work its tragic toll. In the last week alone, it has caused or helped to cause more than 11,000 new deaths, citing the CDC again. And because the disease spreads in shared indoor spaces, it presents heightened dangers in most workplaces. Finally, the standard is necessary to address the danger of COVID-19. OSHA based its rule requiring either testing and masking or vaccination on a host of studies and government reports showing why those measures were of unparalleled use in limiting the threat of COVID-19 in most workplaces. The agency showed in meticulous detail that close contact between infected and uninfected individuals spreads the disease, that the science of transmission does not vary by industry or by type of workplace, that testing, mask wearing, and vaccination are highly effective. Indeed, essential tools for reducing the risk of transmission, hospitalization, and death. And the unvaccinated employees of all ages face a substantially increased risk from COVID-19 as compared to their vaccinated peers. It's like, like, cool. Like, and? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's the question here. It's, it's really like, great. you like, you've provided stats that may or may not be real. Like, and? That, that really is the question. Like, what's the authority? In short, OSHA showed that no lesser policy would prevent as much death and injury from COVID-19 as the standard would. Yeah, what do you think about that so far? <laughs> it's getting a little worked up there. Right. Uh, with good reason. So uh, I have a question. Do you think that OSHA approached uh, President uh, Usurper and Chief Biden and said, uh, well, you know, we got this problem and I think we can deal with it. We're the agency. Or do you think uh, the usurper in chief went to OSHA and says, I want this taken care of and you're the agency? I don't think Biden has a clue what's going on. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I, I found it interesting on that point. Uh, they talked about running Hillary Clinton and Biden <laughs> again. Um, so Hillary would run again. We'd have a repeat of 2016. What I found funny about that is they're not even pretending to want Kamala. <laughs> like, <I know. laughs> they'd rather have this guy who's almost dead, who's not even there, than Kamala Harris. He's actually said that as much too if you've been watching very carefully in the videos there have been times when he said i don't want to i don't know why i'm here yeah you know somebody told me i got to i got to call on this person first and he has to look down at his notes to see who's supposed to call him yeah and uh, i obviously i think the american people are catching on um the last poll i heard uh, was that he has like a 33 percent approval rating which i still can't believe it's that high but still that's pretty low i mean they were they were after trump uh when he was 46 you know he's dropping like a a rock well 46 a lot higher than 33 yeah yeah then there's something else um uh in the dissenting opinion they were talking about how the uh, supreme court is unelected and that they won't face the wrath of the voters you know when they make this decision well, uh, are they aware that OSHA is not elected either? That's a very good point. <laughs> okay. All yeah. right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I mean, that's and that's what we were talking about earlier with the ad hoc approach. It's like they're they're very utilitarian in that they'll use whatever is beneficial to them in the moment. And it's never principle. It's never the principle. Um, so they'll use states when it's beneficial. They'll use the federal government when it's beneficial. Congress. But... Yeah. Or, 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 uh, with the, um, the filibuster, right? Like how many times did they use it? I, I cited it in the last podcast. I, uh, embedded the actual number. I think it was like 300 times yeah, they used the filibuster. Well, Trump and, and now they're trying to get rid of it. So, yeah. Did you uh, see Senator, uh, Cotton was that today where he read a speech about, um, uh, defending the filibuster how important it was did you see that at all i I, I didn't see that no yeah and and guess who wrote it who uh chuck schumer (laughs) wow (laughs) chuck schumer uh gave that same speech uh when he was you know whining from the other side now he wants to impose the filibuster yeah uh, that he's on the other side. Anyway, I just thought that was fun. Yeah, well, uh, there's another comment from Daniel. It says, I'm going to cite the Dungeons and Dragons handbook next. Clearly more authoritative confidence than the Constitution on this. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's yeah. continue. I don't know okay. how, I don't know if we'll finish the whole thing, but um, we'll keep reading. OSHA's determinations are conclusive if supported by substantial evidence. Judicial review under that test is deferential as it should be. So they're talking about Chevron deference right there. OSHA employs in both its enforcement and health divisions, numerous scientists, doctors, and other experts in public health, especially as it relates to work environments. Their decisions, we have explained, should stand so long as they are supported by such relevant evidence as a reasonable mind might accept as adequate to support a conclusion. Um, Given the extensive evidence in the in the record supporting OSHA's determinations about the risk of COVID-19 and the efficacy of masking, testing, and vaccination, a court could not conclude that the standard fails substantial evidence review. 
The court does not dispute that the statutory terms just discussed read in the ordinary way authorize this standard. In other words, the majority does not contest that COVID-19 is a new hazard and physically harmful agent, that it poses a grave danger to employees, or that a testing and masking or vaccination policy is necessary to prevent those harms. Instead, the majority claims that the act does not plainly authorize the standard because it gives OSHA the power to set workplace safety standards and COVID-19 exists both inside and outside outside the workplace. In other words, the court argues that OSHA cannot keep workplaces safe from COVID-19 because the agency, as it readily acknowledges, has no power to address the disease outside the work setting. I actually think that that's a good argument. I think that they're they're pointing out flaws in the majority's argument that we've recognized. If you're if you are so vague in how much authority you think the constitution has or how much authority Congress has to defer to executive agencies, then you leave room for these criticisms from the more liberal side of the the bench. Um, They continue, but nothing in the act's text supports the majority's limitation on OSHA's regulatory authority. Of course, the majority is correct that OSHA is not a roving public health regulator. It has power only to protect employees from workplace hazards. But as just explained, that is exactly what the standard does. And the act requires nothing more. Contra the majority, it is in. indifferent to whether a hazard in the workplace is also found elsewhere. The statute generally charges OSHA with assuring so far as possible safe and healthful working conditions. That provision authorizes regulation to protect employees from all hazards present in the workplace or at least all hazards in part created by conditions there. It does not matter whether those those hazards also exist beyond the workplace walls. The same is true of the provision at issue here demanding the issuance of temporary emergency standards. Once again, that provision kicks in when employees are exposed in the workplace to new hazards or substances or agents determined to be physically harmful. The statute does not require that employees are exposed to those dangers only while on the workplace clock. And that should settle the matter. When Congress enacts expansive language offering no indication whatever that the statute limits what an agency can do. The court cannot impose limits on an agency's discretion that are not supposed supported by the text. Um, That is what the majority today does, impose a limit found in no place in the governing statute. Consistent with Congress's directives, OSHA has long regulated risk that arise both inside and outside of the workplace. For example, OSHA has issued and applied to nearly all workplaces rules combating risks of fire, faulty electrical installations, and inadequate emergency exits, even though the dangers prevented by those rules arise not only in workplaces but in many physical facilities. Similarly, OSHA has regulated to reduce risk risks from excessive noise and unsafe drinking water. Again, risks hardly confined to the workplace. A biological hazard here, the virus causing COVID-19 is no different. Indeed, Congress just last year made this clear. It appropriated $100 million for OSHA to, quote, carry out COVID-19 related work worker protection activities in work environments of all kinds. That legislation refutes the majority's view that workplace exposure to COVID-19 is somehow not a workplace hazard. Congress knew and Congress said that OSHA's responsibility to mitigate the harms of COVID-19 in the typical workplace do not diminish just because the disease also endangers people in other settings. That is especially so because at 
As OSHA amply established, COVID-19 poses special risks in most workplaces ac- across the country and across industries. So I, I actually think that they're very logically consistent. And this is where like, this is the problem with having philosophers on the bench. Um, if, if the majority isn't going to check Congress's power to defer authority to these executive agencies, then you, why not reason this way? Right. It's just, if it, it just depends on how you feel that day, really. And I, I think that that's why Gorsuch's uh, opinion is so great, um, just because it, it, it is starting to question whether or not Congress even has the authority to uh, give OSHA this this power. Right. Because it is so big. Yeah. And if he's, in fact, making that argument, I think it's a, an excellent argument. And it's a question that needs to be asked over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So they continue that is especially so because as OSHA amply established, COVID-19 poses special risks in most workplaces across the country and across industries. The majority ignores these findings, but they provide more than ample support for the standard. OSHA determined that the virus causing COVID-19 is readily transmissible in workplaces because they are areas where multiple people come into contact with one another, often for extended periods of time. In other words, COVID-19 spreads more widely in workplaces than in other venues because more people spend more time together there. And critically, employees usually have little or no control in those settings. During the workday, OSHA explained, workers may have little ability to limit contact with coworkers, clients, members of the public, patients, and others, any one of whom could represent a source of exposure to the virus. The agency backed up its conclusions with hundreds of reports of workplace COVID-19 outbreaks, not just in cheek-by-jowl settings like factory assembly lines, but in retail, retail stores, restaurants, medical facilities, construction areas, and standard offices. But still, OSHA took care to tailor the standard where it could exempt work settings without exposing employees to grave danger. It did so. And some... The agency did just what the act told it to. It protected employees from a grave danger posed by a new virus as and where needed and went no further. The majority in overturning that action substitutes judicial diktat for reasoned policymaking. The result of its ruling is squarely at odds with the statutory scheme. As shown earlier, the act's explicit terms authorize the standard. Once again, OSHA must issue an emergency standard in response to new hazards in the workplace that expose employees to grave danger. The entire point of that provision is to enable OSHA to deal with emergencies to put into effect the new measure needed to cope with new workplace conditions. The enacting Congress, of course, did not tell the agency to issue the standard in response to this COVID-19 pandemic because because that Congress could not predict the future. And there it is. They're giving essentially just power for these agencies to do whatever they think. You know, it's it's, if, if the executive branch can issue an emergency for anything, whatever, like they would have the authority to do it under this opinion. And right. and that's what we could have had. We are like, we, and, and that's what I think people need to realize. This is not a win. Like this is not a win. It's just another precedent to be added to the list of precedents they already have because under any other presidency with, with a different makeup of the court, if they expand the court, if they get more justices on there, this, this goes another direction. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the the uh, six three could easily, and 
would very likely uh, have been nine zero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Eight one. I think Clarence Thomas would have held out. And then um, Daniel's pointing this out again. What about the risks of heart disease from being forced to eat fast food or not being supplied healthy options by their employer? Like it could be anything. That's mm-hmm. the exact point that I'm trying to make. Right. Um, do you want to keep going? There's five more pages left. I don't know. Uh, how about you? I think just skip to the end and see if she yep. comes up or he, who wrote this? I can't remember already. Yeah. Let me see. I'll scroll up really quick. Alito. It's, it's Briar. Um, uh, Briar. I, I don't know who would have, I think it's Briar. Okay. Uh, so it's Briar, Sotomayor and Kagan. Yeah. Let's go with Briar uh, and see what his conclusion is. Okay. I mean, it's not like this isn't fun, but. Well, and, and it's also like, we kind of get the point. Like, I think, I think, <laughs> I think we could summarize exactly what they were going to say before we, before we even, you know, got to it. And we had addressed a lot of this um, while going over the, con- the controlling opinion, because it's just, it's, it's the way that they understand jurisprudence over the court. Um, but yeah, uh, let me just. C- Go to the last paragraph. It is funny. Their their dissents much longer than the other opinions. And then there is this court. Its members are elected by and accountable to no one. And we lack the background, competence, and expertise to assess workplace health and safety issues. When we are wise, we know enough to defer on matters like this one. When we are wise, we know not to displace the judgment of experts acting within the sphere Congress marked out and under presidential control to deal with emergency conditions. Today, we are not wise. In the face of a still raging pandemic, this court tells the agency charged with protecting workers' safety that it may not do so in all the workplaces needed. As disease and death continue to mount, this court tells the agency that it cannot respond in the most effective way possible. Without legal basis, the court usurps a decision that rightfully belongs to others. It undercuts the capacity of the responsible federal officials acting well within the scope of their authority to protect American workers from grave danger. And there we have it. When we are wise. So uh, let's exclude uh, Associate Justice uh, Sotomayor from that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, didn't... uh, Justice uh, Kagan also said, what, what did you say that she said? I can't remember already. Yeah, there, there were many things. She said it's beyond settled that vaccines and masks are the best way to stop the spread. Yeah. And she also said she, she was uh, the one who um, argued that this wasn't a vaccine mandate because they offered other alternatives. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, it, it's funny because like all of these authorities are – they're nowhere laid out in the constitution, like we have said. Um, and the the fact that they're so willing to defer to executive agencies when they're the ones who gave those executive executive agencies the power, like they're the ones who have ruled that we should de- defer to executive agencies because they are experts. They like, mm-hmm. this is a Supreme court. Like this is the creation of a, an all too powerful Supreme court who has legislated and defined the federal government, essentially. They've yeah. given the federal government this power. As as being more and more and more powerful uh, every decade 
since the existence of our country. They have given um, our government more and more power, our general government, and taken more and more power away from the states. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, that, that, that was my main point is just that like we're, we're creating, they have essentially created this technocratic government that we have where it's just ruled by experts. None of them are elected. They say in that opinion, it's like, we are not the elected branch, but as you mentioned, well, neither are these agencies. Right. Well, and you can't even, there's no oversight. You can't even ask questions. Uh, did you watch, uh, Senator Cruz uh, talking to the FBI representative in Congress yesterday. I heard about it, but I, I didn't get to read up on it. Yeah, so he asked some very pointed questions. And I'm pretty upset with Senator Cruz, but he was asking most of the right questions of the FBI representative, uh, as assistant director, I can't remember, some guy. And, and she refused to answer any questions. He oh, no, I directly, did see that clip. Yeah, I did see that clip. They were even asking about Ray Epps, which we talked we talked about on the January 6th one. And she wouldn't answer any of those questions. So Congress, once they give these people the authority, they can't they can't uh, exercise any control over them whatsoever. That that woman wouldn't even answer his questions. And one of them, pretty easy question to answer. And she wouldn't do it. Yeah, so, the the question was, is was the FBI involved on January sixth? We can't answer. <laughs> Yes. Who's Ray Epps? I don't know. (laughs) You know, so uh, that's what gravels. It boggles the mind that they can't. uh, These justices in this dissenting opinion can't connect the fact that they would give these people deference, these uh, administrative agencies deference, but without oversight. Yeah. There's a they have to be able to connect that in their mind. And I I don't think they can. So on one hand, they're. They're creations of Congress, but Congress can't have any oversight over them. Yeah, right. all, all of it's a mess. Right. It's just like states created the national government. Eh, can't, we can't control them. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah. Uh, well, we've been going for about two hours. If you have any more thoughts, uh, I, I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> You're tired? Okay. Yeah. Uh, we should spend... Just a little bit of time, uh, speaking of FBI, uh, talking about that Oath Keepers. I, I don't know if you heard about that at all. Yeah. So I, I just want to briefly mention that because I think if I don't, I'll forget. And, you know, uh, the news cycle might change from these guys. But I, I do think that that uh, charge against the – in fact, I think there's 10, isn't there, Oath Keepers? I can't remember. Uh is intended to have a chilling effect on the uh, the uh, complaints about the national government's treatment uh, January 6th and, and the prisoners there. And so anybody else wants to say, well, you, you want to come to the D.C. And, and protest, this is what you're going to get. So I think that's a significant story that you know, we should probably think about talking one of these days, talking yeah. about one of these days. And then I know that uh, Ray Epps was an Oath Keeper, I think. He was mm-hmm. he was an Oath Keeper, and they're, they're not interested in him at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and we kind of talked about that in the last stream. If, if anyone's listening, they should check that, that podcast out, too. It was on January 6th, um, just talking about the 
year anniversary of it. Um, I think it is silly that we we're even calling it that because it's like the fact that we're even making it up to be something more than it, than it was is we've already kind of lost that, that conversation. Um, there were some, I, I don't know. Did, did you read any, um, of the opinions from more progressive people, what they thought about this opinion. I, I saw some tweets um, just saying that this was the worst. They they expected that this is how the court was going to go. Um, but did you have any things that you took away from reading articles or tweets or anything like that? Yeah, I think we've covered most of it. Um, so uh, where was that? I had a I had this pulled up here. Um, well, we're disappointed in the Supreme Court's ruling in our, on our lawsuit against the healthcare worker vaccine mandate. That fight is far from over, and the case is still ongoing. So, both of these things are actually still in the works, which I didn't understand when I first heard the the ruling of the court today. So, that's one thing. Uh, let's see. I got it. Yeah, I can't find it anymore. Was it the NBC article? It was. Uh, I've got that up right now but i just can't really remember exactly what i know this is the epic times article that i've got okay. uh i won't spend much time looking for it because i think you're right two hours is quite a bit yeah i'll just read a couple comments and we'll we'll finish with i'll read a couple tweets and what okay, people are saying because it's, it's kind of funny um well, aren't we seeing what happens right now? Companies are whining about a lack of employees. Everyone just needs to get vaccinated and we will be done with this crap. Uh, cool. So now the federal government lacks the authority to meaningfully manage a pandemic. God help us if something with 10 times or 100 times the mortality rate of COVID comes along. This was a partisan decision and short-sighted one. It will further undermine the legitimacy of the court. <laughs> oh my God. That's so bad. <laughs> Since allowing individuals to control their bodies is all the rage now among the six conservative justices, I wonder when they'll block recent legislation to uphold Roe v. Wade. Yeah, so we've talked about that too. That's an interesting uh, argument that I always answer the exact same way. Well, I am all for bodily autonomy. And absolutely, uh, the government should mandate should mandate what we put in our bodies. Uh or for that matter, uh, necessarily uh, take out of them, as long as we extend that uh, courtesy to the babies in the womb. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the answer there. Um, yeah, I saw I saw another thing. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly what his argument was, um, but he he finished with, "It's time to get. It's time to um, take to the streets." Is how he finished the tweet, and it was like. So this is what's going on in your mind. This is like the worst pandemic in the last century. And we're going to protest the government saying that you can't vaccinate people by going out and gathering in public. Like I just there, like I said, it's just, it's all ad hoc there. There's no principle there. Um, they're utilitarians. Right. They, they don't, uh, uh, the consistency of their principles is completely non-existence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been going for two hours. We're about to hit the two hour mark, uh, five seconds and we'll be there. <laughs> I had, I had a lot of fun and we'll definitely be doing this again. I told you that I'd have, have you back on. Um, but yeah, I'd love to do it again. And maybe we'll talk about the FBI next week. Sounds good. Yeah. Cool. Let's let me know. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. And if you, if you have anything else, please say it. And then if not, we'll, we'll see you later. Okay.
I'm good. Cool. Thanks again, Liam. Good night. Good night.